Hello and welcome to The Real Maxime Podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. Experts are seeing a rapid increase in the number of people playing games, with a staggering 3.4 billion people worldwide in 2023. As for the global market itself, experts estimate $188 billion in annual revenue from the gaming industry, according to research firm Newsroom. Our guest today is Olya Kiluzhnya, CEO and co-founder of Sandlo, a fintech venture that provides digital financial infrastructure and non-dilutive capital to game and app developers. Founders of gaming companies often prioritize product development over business building. Sandlo provides access to technology, tools, and insights that will allow them to achieve smart and scalable growth while remaining financially healthy, even if they're a smaller company without time to sit down and structure their finances. Then when Sanlo's proprietary algorithms determine the business could benefit from the smart deployment of capital, it will assist by offering financing. In turn, the company monetizes its offering through subscription fees and financing gaming companies. The idea for Sanlo came from empathy for the customer, the size of the market, and the pain point of managing back office operations. The company raised over $13 million from top-notch investors, Index Ventures, and Convoy. It has also partnered with HCG, so game developers can tap into a pool of $200 million in non-dilutive capital. In our insightful conversation, we discuss how a unique combination of skills, friendship, and knowledge led Olya to embark on his journey with our co-founder, Will Yu. Through customer discovery conversations with people in the gaming industry, they identified common themes that led them to start a business to serve the needs of gaming companies. Olya shares very valuable advice on what she believes to be three essential pillars of business building, starting and ending with the customer, setting a strong foundation with the team, and creating optionality to adapt to changing circumstances. Olya began a career in venture capital in one of the first mobile-focused funds before moving to operator roles in gaming, stock photography, and fintech at EA, Getty Image, and SickThing. She holds an MBA from the London Business School. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I was born and primarily grew up in a tiny country for which there's even a board game dedicated. It's called Moldova, and the board game is called Where on Earth is Moldova? So many people don't know about the existence of that country, but that's something that obviously influenced who I became ultimately. But that's, I was born in an era when Soviet Union was slowly and surely disappearing from this planet. So a lot of Things that I was observing as a child has, again, influenced some of the things that I became interested in. One of those things was how things can go wrong, even when you have all the necessary components to be successful. And then when things do go wrong, how can you improve them? And, you know, one of the um, high level examples from the country where I grew up was that from a standpoint of economic environment, it was not doing great. But from a natural resources perspective, it's used to be at least one of the best places on the planet on the agricultural side. And yet, you know, some things did not definitely go right there. At the same time, there were a lot of people who were forced to be entrepreneurial and forced to be creative around how they made their living. And even a bigger dilemma was, how do you make your living while remaining ethical and true to yourself and helping others along the way? So I think a big part that influenced me was my father and my mother. I was growing up as a single child, so I got a lot of attention. Uh, and I had my front row seat into some of the struggles and passions that they had as entrepreneurs. So they very much affected what I wanted to do with my life. And I wanted to be an entrepreneur. At a young age, I didn't know what exactly I would be building, but I knew that I wanted to build something 
from scratch and I wanted that something to be impactful and useful. To answer your question about some of the early passions, I always liked playing games. At first, those were not video games. Those were board games. Those were playing games outside with my friends and just coming up with new game mechanics, if you will. At the same time, I really liked math. I went to math-focused school and I enjoyed it very much. And then the part of my early life that affected me was also when my family decided I was part of that decision as well was to move to Canada. And the transition from one country to a very different country from many different angles is something that impacted a few things that I ended up doing in life. And it reinforced the desire to start something of my own. And there it was more focus on building a company, building a product for other entrepreneurs. So over time, it got fine-tuned a bit further around what it is that I want to build and for whom. So how old were you when you moved to Canada? 19. So you were done with high school. Oh, yeah. So presumably you went to college in Canada. Yeah. So I started university in Ukraine, actually, while we were waiting for immigration papers. And so I went to university there for two years and moved to Canada. But this is where I did my undergrad ultimately in Toronto. And talk to us a little bit about what was your perception growing up of the environment that you're in and what were the things when you say you obviously had an example from your parents and that usually probably has an overweight in terms of the influence one might see and an inspiration it sounds like based on our conversations. Were there other exogenous elements that as you became more aware from child to a teenager to a young adult that really shaped your desire to not follow in the footsteps of being dependent on other people's decision and wanting to take control of your own destiny? What is it that shaped that view of the world? I think as being a child and again, going back to the situation where the country I was born in was in, I think I saw a lot of small anecdotes in life where there were situations where people would want to change something and they couldn't. It would be something that would be outside of their power or of their jurisdiction or just lack of faith that they can change anything. And there was always this something else that would prevent them, be it a bureaucracy, be it corruption, be it lack of motivation. And I think having seen that, I wanted to be in a position where I could have freedom and credibility, and I think credibility is an important word, to be able to make decisions that would be impactful for others and not necessarily be constrained by factors, external factors that are out of my control. And there was a point in my life where I was trying to decide to go down the law school route or go down the business school route. And the advice that I got at that point was go the business route because this is where there's not as much of a framework and you can be mobile globally. You can be anywhere in the world. You can really work on any problem that you can, you would like to focus on. There are no restrictions around that. You can be the one that provides jobs. And I think with job and with a good job, there comes sense of security and happiness that you can spread to other people. If you're successful with your business, you can have that credibility and then you can spread that positivity and hopefully good impact even beyond any business that you might be building. Yeah. So I guess I'm not be answering your question around like what are the specific, specific situations, but I guess I'll give you one example. You know, you would be uh, at the time when I was growing up, at least you might be looking for medical attention and you would not be getting it because there would be a long line ahead of you or the shortage of doctors. 
And there's nothing really that you can do as, or you could do as a normal person living in the country at the time. So those are the types of situations of powerlessness that I was seeing. And I never wanted to be in that situation myself when I would grow up. And entrepreneurship seemed like a path that could offer an alternative lifestyle to what I was seeing as a child. Yes. Naturally, the exposure to that would certainly prompt one to seek a framework where the private initiative, in other words, the desire to want to overcome some problems and constraints, would lead one to start a business, for example. And as we know, in the system where there's more of an emphasis on enabling or making it easier to allocate capital to start the right structures to support those ideas, to hire people, to have that flexibility to do that will inevitably result in business creation to solve such problems. So, you know, I could see those episodes really as being cornerstone to one's vision. One of the things I see from my conversations, and I have this interesting vantage point that I can start seeing some patterns from assessing and just hearing the stories of entrepreneurs is whether there are first-generation immigrants and there's that strong desire that you've outlined and also the resilience that comes with it, right? That's one very established pattern. And as we know, whether it's in the US or Canada, there's a very, very strong community of first-generation immigrants that came and started businesses. And I suspect one of the big drivers is this having grown in a system where the yearning, the need, and the ambition to overcome some limitations really drove people to take control of their destiny and then create great things. I mean, I think there's something that you said earlier on about wanting to create value, wanting to create jobs, sometimes overlooked. I mean, I know when I started my first business, I'm also a first-generation immigrant in the US. One of the things that I felt the proudest was I'm not only paying taxes for myself, I'm paying taxes as a business in a country that's really essentially created the framework for me to establish myself, and I'm creating jobs, right? And there's a sense of empowerment and responsibility that comes through that. Now, it is the same throughout the world, but I think it's much more emphasized here and in Canada, I think. And there was really a desire for me to prove that I could do it here and I could do things here that I couldn't do, you know, back home, right? Yeah, 100%. And I think just to elaborate a little bit on that, I think Canada, for me personally, Canada played a big role education-wise. That's where I went to university. And I think Canadian, at least university system, is really unparalleled in terms of it's a high education and a lot of financial support that I was able to get here. And then I moved to UK and then I moved to US. And US ultimately was the country of opportunities, if you will. That's where I, I would say, you know, while Canada gave me a strong discipline and prudence and education and all like the fundamentals to have that, going back to the word credibility, I feel like I'm, I had to prove to the world through education that I can do something. Whereas US was different for my, I think it was fundamental to be there to learn on the job, to be able to meet a lot of different people and to learn. And ultimately, the country where I started the business and where's the company are a US-based company. Majority of our team is US-based. So for me personally, both countries played fundamental roles, but those roles were different. So talk to us about what eventually led you down expressing that view, expressing that desire to become an entrepreneur. I'm assuming it didn't happen overnight. So you go to university what is the progression there? And what do you think actually prepared you well 
aside from, again, the conditioning, the aspirations that we refer to, what were the empirical events and trainings that you think were instrumental in creating the path that you're on now? Yeah. So my first job out of school was in venture capital. And admittedly, I went into venture capital without fully realizing what it was. So it's one of those situations where being young and blissfully ignorant, you go for it because it sounds exciting, but you don't fully understand what you're getting yourself into. That was one of those great experiences that I had and I didn't plan for. But that was important because I was at an early stage fund, seed stage and series A. And I think, again, that being the very first job out of school, I saw firsthand entrepreneurs coming and pitch their ideas. And just the idea of pitching an idea was new and, and exciting. And people were coming, obviously it was all in the tech industry, but it was very diverse. So it was very first exposure that for me was the aha moment of, huh, this exists. And this is how we got, at the time, it was like how we got Facebook. And this is how iPhone came about. And at the time it was also, BlackBerry was still around and iPhone was still on the horizon. There were still debates around whether touchscreen will ever work or not. But that was very eye-opening. And I think that opened a window for opportunities for me. I, I ended up going back to school. I went to UK and that was very important because it was very international. And I think it opened up again, it was more so opening up the horizons of there are other countries out there in the world. There are different people. They think differently. They act differently, but fundamentally we're all humans. And I think that opened up more of a natural curiosity towards things that I might have been uncomfortable before because I just didn't know they, how to deal with them. So I think that experience was very much around acknowledging that there are lots of differences among humans out there and how might one communicate well and how might one work and collaborate well with others that might be, again, fundamentally thinking or acting differently. I went to consulting. Consulting was not my favorite experience, but I think I learned so much that I would never actually go back and change that in my life. That was severe nights of number crunching and strong work ethic and you never late even if you didn't sleep well or if you didn't sleep at all. But I think that taught me a lesson of hard work and sometimes you need to crunch. And it's okay. It will pass, but sometimes you need to do that. And it made me really, really comfortable with just generally numbers and modeling. And that's the skill that I use up to this day. The piece that led me to seriously start thinking about the company and wanting to get there at some point was my next experience, which was a company called Playfish. Playfish was a social gaming company. I joined when Electronic Arts bought Playfish, but I joined at the time when Playfish was still very much run as a startup, if you will. We were about 100 people in London, and it was very inspiring to be a part of, a, I would say, a smaller team with hugely successful products were games that people around the world used to play. And at the same time, I was truly having fun working on that product also because of the people I was working with. And founders were still around at that time. So I got to observe those guys of how they operated, how they talked, how they communicated among themselves and with us as their employees. And I was very inspired. I think I was very inspired by the whole possibility that, hey, you can have, this is an example of a business that works, that with a product that's being used by a lot of people around the world. So it has utility that it brings into this world. And at the same time, me being part of that business is happy me, like I'm having fun. And that's what made me think about, like, this is real. It's real to have a business which you love running and you can build it. And I saw firsthand the founders who did that. 
So I think Playfish was the first experience when I looked at all of this, I was like, I want this. Like, I want at some point in my life to be able to build a company that would have this culture and then this impact. So later, I obviously had other experiences as well, but I would say that those early experiences in my life, so that was before, until I was 27, 28, those professional experiences very much shaped what I wanted to do ultimately with my life. I knew that I wanted to build product and I really enjoyed, always enjoyed product manager and my professional DNA is product manager, even up to this day. And I learned things that I like, but I must do. I learned things that I like and I want to do and I love doing. And I learned things that I should never touch, either because I'm not good at that or because just not a source of energy in any shape or form. What are those? The ones that don't bring energy and I should not be touching. Yeah, I'm just curious. Yeah. Generally speaking, I like math, but I never, for example, I never liked level of mechanical work that bookkeeping or accounting or financial modeling provide. So this is the stuff that I like understanding, but I would rather not do it myself. <laughs> Understand. So you could have a very quick look and not only intuitively, but computationally assess a situation, whether it's metrics. And you know, like the product manager profession, I mean, you look at Procter & Gamble, right? The institution of marketing and product management, the path for many, many years to becoming CEO and grooming for the executive suite was through product management, right? As a product manager, you were essentially a, a mini CEO running one or several lines of businesses. You started with one and then you accumulated them and became a general manager. And because you need to understand the full cycle all the way from the demand needs and understanding exactly how to be in sync with those demand, understanding the sales cycle and the feedback that comes from having a go-to-market effort and translate that in ongoing interpretation of what the need is and how to create value there. And it sounds to me like going back to your background that, you know, at an early age, you were able to see, you know, when you're hearing pitches as a venture investor, you're seeing and hearing a lot of the hypothetical, right? Obviously, a, a big part of assessing a deal is assessing the team and its track record and the opportunity itself. But fundamentally, and for many years, you know this, you're an entrepreneur and, and started a company. It's really within the realm of hypotheticals versus when you were at EA. I think what you got is a firsthand exposure to what it is to be at a business that's not, it's still figuring things out, but it's not figuring out the fundamentals. It's got solid people. It's got execution mechanics in place. And so seeing this, and you're talking about one of the big names in that industry, but also in the world, right? You're talking about companies that are well-established. And there's a reason for that, because through its evolution, it's acquired the right human capital, it's developed the right inherent practices, best practices internally. And I think that's a phenomenal environment to get trained in. And I think if you never see it, you know, it's you could be sitting as an investor, reviewing decks, hearing founders pitch you or management teams and more established companies, but seeing it from the inside is you understand, okay, what does it really take? Like take aside the hypothetical, I'm pitching you this, I'm telling you why it could potentially be a great idea versus like, we're doing it, we're executing, we're best in class in how we do it. So it's interesting that you got both perspective. I was going to ask, and, and this brings us to ultimately the inception of your business, but not to jumpstart that. Did sitting on the other side, in other words, on the venture side at an early age, and even though you said you were young and probably inexperienced, 
Did it give you an edge as to how to approach investors and other stakeholders to support your business down the road? Were there things and takeaways that you remember saying, oh, I was in their seat one day and I know how they think? I wish I could say yes, but no. Uh, <laughs> I think at the time it was, for me, the takeaway was more just the possibility and how many ideas existed out there. And I think more just realization that anything is possible. And I think that's actually the most important thing that first job experience gave me, the confidence that I can make things happen. It was less of a tactical of how to talk to investors, how to pitch to investors. It came to me later in life. And it, for me personally, I had to be in that operator seat first, interestingly enough, before I was able to relate to investors also better. And to be able to understand, then combine what I learned from that first VC experience and the tactics, the fundamentals that I learned from my operating experience. And then I also, I think one of the pivotal points in starting the company to maybe go back to your one of your earlier questions was later in life, right before we started Sandlom, I went back into venture capital. So that was after 10 years of working. And that's when there was this aha moment of like, oh, that's what those entrepreneurs were trying to communicate to us when I was in VC back in 2008. And that's why they talked about this and that. So it came to me later, later in life, not when it was my first job out of school, I would say. So I talked about the venture side on the operating side. If you could like nail it in like three tenets that you really got from the operating experience and that you think to this day you think about? Because it sounds to me like the EA experience, and even though there were subsequent experiences after this, were highly formative. And really for listeners, what were the top three things that you think were the key takeaways that you sort of abide by? I think one is never lose sight of the bigger picture. And it's very hard when you're operator, it's very hard. There are just so many things to do. And it doesn't matter if you're a founder or, or if you're a product manager or your product marketer or you an engineer. I think we we get busy with things. So and there's never forgetting the the why, why we do what we do as a company, as a person. So never trying to not lose sight of the why. The second thing I would say that's important to me is being practical. So to your point, somewhat along the point that you were making the hypotheticals, right? I think the big takeaway for me of consulting, for example, versus being a product manager at a company was always having the so what. You look at the data, but why do you look at the data? Like, what are you trying to do? Versus hypothetical things that we could have, should have done, or we could do, or maybe we can't do this. So always keeping your feet on the ground. So, and those two come together, right? Like on one side, you never lose the side of a bigger picture of the why, but at the same time, keeping your feet on the ground as to why you do what you do today and how you do it in a way that has the impact so that every 30 minutes of your day matter. And I think keeping it constrained to three things. The third thing is nothing is done alone. I think it's important to always acknowledge that it's always the team effort. Building a family is a team effort. Building a company is a team effort. Signing a new customer is a team effort. So I think it's appreciation of the fact that it's normally not an act of one person. It's a combination of an effort of multiple people that might have put effort into something to for that something to happen. Very true. And if you want to go to distance, it's better not to do it alone. I've always been, and I've done both team founding and solo founding. And I'd say by far the team founding outweighs just in terms of being able to get 
a wider variety of uh, perspectives in risk management and the ability to challenge your priors and your heuristics and always have a counterpart to challenging your views or augmenting your views. Because decision-making and operating is really, sometimes you actually need to overweight and go all in. And so the convergence and the validation of two or three minds thinking the right direction, whilst it might still be the wrong decision, I think is going to allow you to put a lot more mental energy into it and align as much as it is sometimes necessary to have someone in the room say, no, I don't think this is a good idea. I think we should question that. Speaking of teams, how did you and your co-founder meet and what's the genesis behind getting together and start formulating a view to, to build a business? So my co-founder, Will, Will Lu, he's a CTO. He and I met back at Playfish in 2011. So we've known each other for quite some time. He was a lead engineer on Sims game and I was a product manager on Sims. So we've known each other for more than 10 years at this point. So it's definitely, that was an important component of knowing. I know it's a cliche to say that, but it is, co-founding is like a marriage. Like you need, I think you really need to understand the person that you work with and deeply empathize with each other's thoughts and feelings and and go beyond the working relationship. So you always have the context of why your co-founder might be doing certain things in the way that they do it. So that relationship really helped. The other aspect, I think both Will and I have this combination of gaming and fintech experience. So part of the experience I had that I didn't mention yet is I went into wealth management tech and Will at the same time, final enough, same year, he also left gaming industry and he went into lending tech. So there was this very unique combination of, hey, we like, we like each other, we know each other, we're friends, and we worked before, so we know how we work, we know how we think and how we operate. But on top of that, we have both gaming and fintech. We're equally passionate about bringing those two together. And then the third component to that was he's an engineer and a product manager, and it also was a very complementary skill set. But the very important thing I think was that we were both at the same stage mentally that we were ready to embark on that journey. And before we connected with Will, I actually worked with a couple other people to almost like a trial to try co-founding a company and something would always be missing. And with Will, within two weeks, we're like, okay, we're ready. It feels right. Again, we have complementary skill set We and we're ready. We're ready that it's going to be a journey going to be likely a long journey. And we're happy to embark on that together. I'm unpacking what you just said. And again, for listeners, it's a topic that I'm very keen on expanding into because the team is the really the epicenter of the effort. And you know, there's a number of things that are very important to glean from what you said. Whether you did it consciously or not, they're very clear and they fit the formula for successful outcome. Not to say that the business for sure has to be successful as a result of that, but it creates one of the most important foundations, right? If you're building a house, you need to set the architecture, right? And the architecture starts with the people and it starts with the founders. To your point, it is like a marriage. There will be ups and downs, the ability to operate in ways that is highly complementary, highly non-overlapping skills, but then share not only the common passion, but the subject matter expertise is very apparent from what you just said. And again, I reiterate it because oftentimes you see these teams, especially in frothier markets that come together. Everyone wants to get a, a ticket on to ride to the top and 
people will meet over coffee and meetings or over Twitter. And, and sometimes it does work. But the reality is of building a business through thick and thin, if you do have to go through the iterations, the pivots, the ups and downs of business cycles, and the internal endogenous decision making, is one where having an established history of having worked together is not a guarantee of success. Because I've, I've also seen founding teams hit a rough spot and go their separate ways because they can't navigate that. But hopefully over a longer period of time, you've established that rapport. And if it's done so in a way, again, that's non-overlapping, everyone can pitch in it's like a portfolio approach, right? When one's, if someone's down, the other one can be up. And if someone's covering a certain area, the other one can cover another area. And then there's that mutual respect and accountability that is so essential. So I'm a firm believer in teams. I know some folks out there are tremendous, again, solo entrepreneurs. They don't have to necessarily deal with that dynamic. Or if they do, it's with the people that they employ as their initial employees or executives. And there's numerous examples of that being possible. But I'm very biased towards story like yours. And I find that, again, consciously or subconsciously, you're outlined the best practice. I was going to just say, in terms of the systematic approach, I should give credit to an article from First Round. Because as you were speaking about meeting at coffee shops and over Twitter and having the informal chats, I've done that too. And so for me, I, I knew from day one that I did not want to be a solar founder. So for me, it was deal breaker to have a founder. So I tried all the different ways of finding a co-founder. It was through a VC firm where I was in the EIR. It was through personal connections. And actually the way I rediscovered Will was through a common friend. But by the time I got to talk to Will about the idea, I read up on this article, which I would highly recommend to anybody wanting to or looking for a founder or evaluating a, a founder. It's an article from First Round, and uh, Gloria Lynn wrote the article a while ago, and it's called The Founder of Dating Playbook. Here's the process I used to find my co-founder. And if I remember correctly, there are about 50 questions there. And it goes into details of some personal life, to your work ethic, to why you want to start a company, to how you work day to day, to like what hours of the day are your best hours. So it's very, very detailed. And Will and I did that. We actually went through that questionnaire together. We sat together for a few hours and like, okay, that sounds, seems a little bit weird, but let's do it. And it was very much worth it because it helped them cover a lot of things that obviously we just wouldn't know about each other from like starting from deep motivations of why we want to start a business all the way to the top of just how we operate. So all of that to say, I think this, I do believe in a organized approach to, for both people or three people or four people to evaluate the potential of working together through a process or through a framework. But then ultimately, I think human factor is irreplaceable. Will is by far one of the most trusted humans I have on this planet. So even if he had perfect answers to the questionnaire, but I didn't trust her, didn't trust him, we wouldn't be working together. So both hands go hand in hand. Music to my ears. I'm so glad you've outlined what I hope listeners can glean from and, and using as a template. It might not work in every situation, but I think it's it's very sound and certainly something that I agree with wholeheartedly. So talk to us about a few things. I want to know what was the initial thesis and what were the aspirations? You talk about how you got together, how you validated whether or not you guys were the right team. But again, what was the thesis in terms of what you're trying to solve and why you wanted to do it at that point in time? You know, you keep referring to the why now. I know there's a personal, this is the right time in my career to do it. And I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but there's also a product and a market 
And I want to hear from you as the product manager, how you thought about the market opportunity. And then secondly, love to hear about the logistics, right? People want to hear like, what did it take? Did you spend from your savings initially and or raise some money from friends and family? Did you immediately go to institutional investors? That would be super helpful. Yeah. So at the time when I decided that was time to start a company, my impression was I never had a break from a full-time job to really think and decide what it is that I will build. So first step for me was just creating some space that would pull me out of my daily routine of being on specific job at a specific company. And I spent about a year of doing consulting work, which helped because I, I worked with different teams, different companies, and it gave me extra time in the day to think about other problems that might exist in the world or discover new opportunities. And then at the same time, I made a point of meeting as many VCs as I could in the Bay Area and to learn from those people. My thesis at the time was those folks see a lot of companies and they see companies at different stages. So that's it's a good crowd to get to know either way, to learn now and potentially work with in the future. So that's how I spent my first year of not having a full-time job. And as a result of that, I ended up going to a firm called XYZ Venture Capital. It's a San Francisco-based firm. And I joined them as an entrepreneur in residence. And that's when I really had, I would say, three months of, three or no, a bit longer than three months of those thinking blocks, I would say. Because on one side, I was helping out with a firm, whatever they needed. So be it on the due diligence side, be it on like taking the first calls with entrepreneurs. But at the same time, it also created an opportunity to the partner I was working with, Ross Fubini, like one of, in my experience, one of the best VCs out there. Having this highly, uh, very intellectually strong and positive person side by side with me and having him as a collaborator and as a sounding board on some of the ideas that I was playing with at the time. So I think the circumstances that I was able to create around myself to be able to incubate an idea really helped. So that's partially answering your second question around the tactics there. In terms of how we arrived ultimately at Sandlo and why Sandlo, it came back to, so I was doing, one of the things I was doing a lot when I was AIR, whenever there would an idea that I felt like there was something interesting, I would typically go full on on customer discovery, meaning, Whoever I knew in that industry, I would ask them to get on a call with me for even just for 15 minutes and just ask questions that would be probing questions towards the idea I might have been contemplating. And ultimately, so there were a couple other ideas, but ultimately the way gaming came about was a lot of my good friends, finally enough, again, going back to that Playfish EA experience, because I think the culture was so entrepreneurial, uh, quite a few people after EA ended up starting their own companies. And I was sitting, you know, one of the evenings reflecting with my husband on things that I was thinking of. And, and then we just started chatting about one of our friends from the gaming world. And that's what got me thinking. I was like, how about the, all those gaming companies, the mid-market, the smaller studios, what do they need? And that's how, to be honest, I got really excited about creating something for the people who create games that as broad as it may sound, I was like, I really like those people. And, uh, I think they, they do very unique and fantastic jobs. So could my company be built around the needs of those people? So for me, it was interestingly started with more so with a customer that I wanted to serve, if that makes sense. And then from there, 
the process was what I described before. It was customer discovery. I was like, okay, now I'm actually going to go and talk to as many gaming companies there as possible. And I just want to learn how they work, how they work and what keeps them up at night, what makes them happy, what makes them very unhappy. And as a result of those customer discovery conversations, there were some of the common themes that popped up. And the bigger theme was around however high level it may sound, but more often than not, founders who start gaming companies go into the gaming business because they love building games. And the other aspects of building the business are important and they acknowledge that it's important, but sometimes it takes the backseat because again, they want to focus on product. So you get a lot of product-focused CEOs, if you will, in the gaming world. So the idea of Sandlow basically came out of a couple of things. One was empathy for the customer and customer that I really wanted to build for. And the second came from the size of the market. I looked at how many gaming companies out there, and there are a ton of them. And that was year 2020. So we were deep in the pandemic. Gaming was going even more so through the roof of growth. More people were playing than ever before. There were more studios popping up around the world. So it didn't seem like that would be the industry that will ever stop in its growth. Uh, And the the third component was there was this pain point that the hints at the pain point of, you know, just managing the back office operations for a gaming company, whether it's money related or people related or anything logistic. So, and those three factors combined, that's how idea for Sandlock came about, which was we're building a platform of financial and operational tools for to run a gaming company so that founders can focus on building games. So as an enabler for really an ecosystem that you set out to really, so you had an appreciation for it through your husband and through the community that you got to know, but and then that you experienced as you know an earlier employee. And then you go out and you actually not only like the audience, but then you try to understand exactly what that audience wants, right? Yes. Yep. And the reason why I really like this, again, you know, for purposes of this being useful to others in their journey to build a business is too many times over the last decade and a half, because capital was by and large widely available, you could afford not to do that homework. You could afford to go out and not necessarily do the work of the product manager, of understanding your market, your customers, the persona, who is going to buy what and why do they need it? And I think it sort of flipped the logic really upside down of having fundamentally R&D being funded as opposed to endeavors that ultimately would solve a real problem and presumably you'd be able to monetize that. Talk to us a little bit about how you go from thinking about enabling and creating the platform to allow studios really to produce what they're really good at and take out what they don't necessarily want to be bothered with. How do you think about monetizing that in respect to, from your own perspective and creating revenues that can be accretive to creating enterprise value and therefore value to you as a shareholder, as as an owner of the business, but also in a way that works as an input into other people's unit economics? Yes. So when we started Sandlo, the very first, I'll provide that for a little bit of context. The first product that we worked on was in the space of FP&A, financial planning and analysis. And that was very much in response to a common theme that we were getting from the founders. And that was about, hey, I'm, like we do, we always do planning. We as a gaming company always do planning. We always need to budget. We as Sandlo focused on mobile games initially. And mobile games were and still are very dependent on user acquisition and 
meaning like you can buy consistently bring on users onto the platform in a profitable way. So those companies would do a lot of a lot of analysis, a lot of modeling, a lot of planning. And the pain point that we were seeing or hearing was very much about, hey, I'm I'm drowning in spreadsheets. If there is a tool that helps me save time, that would be great. And then from there, that would typically flow the next pain point, which was about, okay, now that I've uncovered that I'm going to, as a gaming studio, I'm going to invest in this title, whether it's in the talent or user acquisition or making sure that I can actually build additional titles. Now I need to figure out how to bring money on board so that I can execute on that strategy. So that was the initial insight that we had. And that's what we decided to focus on at first. The Again, that was year early 2021. And monetization at that time was, we were contemplating that for the FPNA product, we'll have a subscription fee. And then at some point, we'll also bring capital. And I think at that stage, at that time, given the environment the world was in, given the priorities of the companies that we were speaking with, that FPNA product, again, back in 2021, things have changed drastically since then, was it was a nice to have. And we realized that, well, it's probably a good free product, but it doesn't, it's a vitamin. We're not going to be able to provide enough value for people to say that, yes, I'm willing to pay money for this. Whereas at the same time, the capital side was very, funnily, you say that the capital used to be cheap and easy to get, not as much for gaming, even in the good times. It's a relatively small VC ecosystem that focuses on content gaming. It's even, I think it's more conservative these days, but even back then, there are not as many financing options for the gaming companies. So at the time, this was very clear pain point. And The monetization came very easily. It was basically the way we would design our credit product was so that the gaming company would effectively be able to recoup the ROI from wherever they would deploy financing from Sandlow would come before they would have to repay it back to us. So we designed the product that way and people have been willing to pay for it. So I think we synced the design of the credit product with the timelines on which those game developers were operating in a way that they were able to reap the benefits before needing to pay off the full amount to us. So the monetization, I think, there came very, very easily. And the other aspect of that product was that it's a pretty simple design from, again, from a credit perspective. Um, There's a simple fee and there's a simple repayment schedule. And I think that simplicity is something that people were willing to pay for so that, again, not to have that cognitive overload from things that ultimately is not something that they want to deal with and for those things to take time away from them building games. So that's just that's just an example of the first product that we built. The next product that we're building now, I can't really share details just yet of that product, but that product is very much focused on developers being able to keep to bring additional incremental revenue to whatever they're generating on distribution platforms now, like be it Apple Store, Google Play, Steam, etc. So the pricing is very much synced again with how much value they assign to that incremental revenue versus how much effort they need to put into implementing the product that we're going to providing them with. So, you know, one parallel that comes to mind when you hear talk about the vision and then the implementation is if you think about a number of activities and professions where there's genuine raw talent at very specific subject matters. And the parallel for me, you know, having come from the hedge fund world is the rise over the last 15 years of these multi-strategy large platform funds that 
have essentially competed away a lot of the capital for emerging managers. In other words, if you are a talented trader or have a portfolio of strategies that you've developed, and again, the analogy could be drawn with game creators and developers of game economics and economic subsystems. So those subject matter experts that can go out and build the best game in the same way that you have a portfolio manager that is really good at generating PL, but they may either not have the time, resources, or actually the right expertise to build the entire infrastructure around them to operate. And so they would be wasting a lot of their time doing so. And so what you're creating is essentially an ability for them to abstract away that complexity, both technical and business complexity. And I think that has a lot of value. value. And when you think about it, it's highly applicable. It, it turns out to other verticals, it turns out in your case, you have a a fundamental understanding of that industry that allows you to know exactly what pain points come in priority and need to be addressed to provide the best ecosystem. Talk to us a little bit about the diversity of those revenues, because it sounds to me like there's a healthy revenue mix ultimately that you're targeting, right? I mean, there's a financing component, there's an application, you know, software application component to it delivered as a service. How do you think about your revenue mix? Because that also, again, from the financial standpoint, and I put my investor hat and you've been an investor as well in terms of quality of revenues, quality of earnings, the types of valuation multiples that can be assigned to those. How do you think about your portfolio of revenue streams? Yeah. So I think we've always been inspired by multi-product companies and it takes time, I think, to build a strong multi-product company. So, you know, companies like Shopify or Stripe or Rippling, I think Augusto, they're all very good examples from different industries of companies that were able to ultimately create this multiple streams of revenue. And I think that's the inspiration for us as well. So that's from a purely business unit economics perspective. And then combining that again with what our customers actually need. And I think the way we think about that is that you know, each, again, unfortunately, I can't really speak about all the products that we're bringing to market in the next six to eight months. But the way we think about that is financing will be a certain percentage of the revenue. SaaS product, this is something that we're going to be bring, planning to bring to market early next year. That's more of a traditional, again, SaaS model of a subscription with a free tier for folks to be able to onboard and then convert into a more comprehensive offering that's paid. And then another product that's based more on or tied, the pricing model is more tied to whatever the gaming company is generating themselves in revenue and Sandlo receives a share of that as well. So the intent is definitely to create diversified revenue streams. And I think part of that is also, I think it's generally good discipline for at least the business that we're in to be in a B2B product generally to have diverse revenue streams. I think some Different products require different business models as well, right? More so from a perspective of a customer. The one-time fee business model makes sense for the financing product, but it would not make sense for a SaaS product, for example, right? Again, more so from a customer perspective. So it has to make economical sense to them as well, to our own customers. And then, of course, just the value of diversification for us as a company, right? We always go through the cycles. You could argue that now is a great time for a financing product, right? The, the money is getting more and more expensive. Credit becomes more scarce, but it's not forever, right? So we can't really bet our future as a company on credit product only. I don't think it's a prudent decision for us as a company. So this is one example of, I think, where for us, it's smarter to be diversifying revenue streams because there are economic cycles that will impact everybody, including us. 
from a perspective of being able to make money, to make revenue, and also from a perspective of being able to raise our next round. Credit businesses, as you probably know, fell somewhat out of favor in the VC community in the last few months, whereas they were one of the favorites uh, in 2020. So that also goes through the cycles. So the more diversity, the better I think it is for the health of our company. This is a great perspective. And as we start drawing away from the micro and finishing off on the macro, your ability to see clearly and to build resilience in the business model, is this something that you sort of internalized as a team or has there been input from your investors in adjusting there or it's just part of the plan and you're just executing against it? No, it's always been for us, it's always been part of the vision that we had that we wanted to, again, going back to the customer problem, there are multiple pain points out there that they have. We can't solve it all at the same time, but we're trying to systematically tackle one by one. And different problem requires different solution and different solution may require different business model. But we always wanted to build a platform of tools, not to be a single product company. But to even arrive at that vision in the first place, there was input from early investors, from my co-founder and I, and I would say again, I would emphasize and overemphasize again the customer input of being inspired by what they were telling us or what they are telling us as to what they need. And then ultimately then how we build strategy around our own product rollout. Yeah. And this sets really the stage to really conclude on this. What you've outlined through this conversation, I think three main essential pillars that I think anyone should draw from. One is it always starts and ends with the customer. You've got to do the work. You've got to know your subject matter. You've got to know your personas, who you're selling into and what their problems are. Because once you do, you'll know exactly what if you came to them with a solution they would be willing to pay for. The second is really setting the foundation from a team perspective, from the values and the ability to have trusted partners in the founding team to be able to weather all these iterations, to be able to think through all these problems and setting that foundation right, not glossing over the details, but being very thorough and setting that up because you never want to re- have to revisit that. And third is is really in the context of creating as much optionality as possible, right? If one thinks of it, I think one of the roles as an executive is whatever decisions you make, never make a decision that creates negative convexity. In other words, negative outcomes that will go against you. Create a set of conditions that, given different circumstances, will always work in your favor. So you put in the work to create these different product lines to make sure that your business is resilient to various regime contexts out there. And that's very important because as we're seeing, and we're by no means out of the woods in terms of this new macro cycle that we're in, right? We just have to create as much optionality because no one really knows what the magic formula is going to be. And maybe there isn't any magic formula. Maybe the magic formula is to not have one and just to create optionality versus your competitors. So I think that was a great way to to close on that. And throughout this conversation, I think you've set almost like a pristine template for how to proceed. And I know you're probably thinking, well, there's many things you don't know and it's a struggle every day. I know this, trust me, firsthand. It's never perfect. But certainly there's some really, really good takeaways. And I'm very grateful for you to take the time and walk us through these because I think for someone out there thinking about starting something and whether they're two years out of school or they spent 10 years in an industry, hearing it from people like yourself is incredibly valuable. So I want to thank you. 
Thank you so much. Yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation. It allowed me to reflect back on the past and think about the future. So thank you. It was a great conversation. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management, LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.